You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. We were starting the conversation about social justice and just sort of wrapping up the whole year. And we've been touching on a lot of these issues along the way. And I just wanted to have a more overt conversation about issues related to social justice and the cultural conversation that we're having. I'm not going to re-rehearse everything we we went over last week, just to hit a few highlights. All year we've been focused on this verse of being created in the image of God, and we've been meditating and reflecting on the many applications that the church has historically made about what it means for men and women to be created in the image of God. And I hope that through this series you have grown in your appreciation for the historic Christian view and its many applications to our current cultural conversations. I hope that this will make you a better evangelist as you're talking to your oikos, and that it'll make you feel more confident in the history and legacy that we have as Christians. And the main point we've been making all year is that all humans have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth, and that the first principle or the ground of human rights and human dignity is the image of God. It's an identity issue. That is the Christian position. And we said last week that the government doesn't give us human rights. God gives us human dignity. And that's where that comes from. The government can help protect or erode our rights, but God alone gives us those rights. And it is because we are created in the image of God. And this is just a review from major points we made last week, is that Jesus' vision of justice is a little upside down to our cultural way of thinking. It's that he wants to create a spiritual family with our enemies. He wants us to pursue relational closeness with people that our culture tells us are dangerous to us. Sometimes our political enemies, sometimes our religious enemies. But these are the people that he's called us to. And we use the the example of Judas and Peter last week, that even in the betrayal of Jesus, that Jesus didn't push people away. There was an invitation to come back with Peter. Uh, To honor those who hurt us, that, you know, even in Jesus' betrayal, he still honored Peter. He, He made him the head of the church. He... He commissioned him to feed his sheep. And there's that, that God, the Father, doesn't denigrate us when we make mistakes. He lifts us up. And he, because of our value that he has given us, again, this is an identity issue. You have to understand that everything is, the ground of Christianity is that we have a new identity, that we are new people in the Lord, but that we have this this deeper ground of identity is the image of God, and that is there for every human. And the spirit of adoption, we talked about last week, that in Christ, then, we have a spirit of adoption, and we know our true identity as his children. And that is a special favor that we have from the Father. Not everybody is a child of God. Are we clear about that? Yes. Not everybody is a child of God. The only The people that God calls his children are those who believe in Jesus and call on his name. It says in John 1. 
that those, to those he gave the right to be called children of God. So the old Christmas song of we're all God's children, uh, that's probably not a biblical idea. Yeah. Uh, that we are all created in the image of God, but only those who have their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior are God's children. And we have that spirit of adoption. And when we really know who we are, it starts to change us. It starts to transform us. And we ended last week with that powerful clip with Heidi Baker and her ministry in Mozambique, looking at how when we try to emulate the Father's love to the world around us, the world starts changing. Then finally, my mission every day as I wake up is to display the love of the Father to everyone, including my enemies, whoever they may be, in whatever cultural context I might find myself in. If my words and actions don't promote hope and display kindness to everyone, then maybe it's time to check in with the Lord. We've read this verse a few times this year from James 3, that people who are created in the image of God, we ought not to use our words to speak curses over them. We don't want to use our mouths to speak curses over God's creation and then use our same mouth to sing the praises of the Lord. Some things ought not be. So wherever we are in our speech, even behind closed doors, are we promoting hope? Are we displaying kindness, graciousness? Are we displaying love? Why? Because they are created in the image of God. And I, if, if, I, have, I was telling my husband last night, I was re-watching last week's lesson. I said, I will have failed in this uh, assignment of, of these lessons if you don't understand this one point. And that is that love is not an end in its, of itself. Like our culture has turned love into an idea that's just an end in and of itself. I just love people as they are. And that's it. That's the end of the conversation. The Father's love loves us as we are, but it, it's so radical, it changes us. It transforms us. We want to be different. We want to walk into what the Father has. And every day I want all of you to wake up and, and to think about the people in your life of how does the father think about this person? What are the father's thoughts? What, is the, what are the father's, what I call his hopes and dreams for this person? Because we are to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, right? And, and so through us, as we display the love of the father and the son, through our lives to this person, it ought to change them. It ought to transform them. To love someone is not to leave them in their sin. To love someone is to accept them in their messiness. But then, like we saw in the Heidi Baker clip last week, remember the example of the adopted son? And he, he said that Heidi's love for him, even though she, he kept stealing from her, and she used the example of wrecking the trucks, you know, even though... All of these bad things happen. She, Mama Heidi didn't give up on them, and it has a transformational effect where they start walking into something new. We need to understand that some people are beginners, and we treat them like they ought to be like 30 years along in their faith. 
And so we need to have grace and kindness and engender hope in them that God has a plan for you and God has a vision for you and you don't have to be in your brokenness, like, but God accepts you in your brokenness. And this is to me the great, the, one of the great errors of our culture right now is that the enemy has turned the love conversation into a conversation of sin acceptance. And that I'm all for love. I'm all for being a stand for love. I'm all for loving people that are in their sin. But I'm not for and leaving them without hope of change and transformation and healing and wholeness. That God has a different vision for them than our culture. But that's going to take some courage. And I'm hoping I'm raising up a group of people here who are going to have some courage to have risky love with people in their messiness and to, to, to invite them into the Father's vision by loving them every day, allowing the Father to work through you and in you, to invite them to dinner, to invite them to your house, to invite them into your life, to see something different. It's powerful. It's powerful. When uh, the Lord's bringing to my mind right now, I guess I'm going to share this. Uh, when I was a teenager, uh, going over to the Jackson's house was a powerful experience for me because I saw in their house what something different could look like. That, that when I had met them, that they were divorced. And then they got remarried. And that was a, a, a journey of, of wholeness and healing that, that they had to go through. But as a young, impressionable teenager who had come from a divorced family, and this was like, their daughter was the first real friend I ever made at church. And she was like me. She was the first person I ever met who was like me and had divorced parents. And I finally kind of had permission in my, in my soul somewhere to have a friend at church and that, that they would invite me into their home and I remember like Shell making us macaroni and cheese and in his little bachelor pad in up in Glendora and going over there to spend the night with their daughter and then after they got remarried like going over to their house a few times and hanging out and and being with them and eating dinner with them that had a profound impact on me as a young teenager that there was hope that maybe, maybe the, the outcome of my parents didn't have to be my outcome. And so all those little things Pastor John's talking about with hospitality, you have no idea what the impact of those things are. Kindness. We watched a clip a year ago of, uh, um, in class about a, a, a woman who was living as a man. She was transgender. And the transition that she made was because an older couple in a church took her in and started inviting her to dinner. And they knew she, who she, she was living as a man, but they looked beyond that. They had a supernatural vision. They might not have used those words. Those are my words. But they, they knew the father's vision for her was healing and wholeness. And that the path to getting her there was some kindness and seeing past all of her gender brokenness 
and to give her a safe space to become something new. I hope if I've done anything in this class, I've inspired you to, to, to reflect on the simple things that you can do to invite people into something else. It doesn't have to be a big program. It's, it's, it's kindness. It's trusting the Father to work in that person's life that he's bringing them along and we're just kind of providing a safe space for them to grow. Yeah, good for you, you can do it. But I think about like in your family with your girls, they probably have some friends from broken homes and and you're like, I I don't want you to underestimate the impact that you're having as they watch you. I used to, boy, I'm just gonna cry through this whole lesson. Uh, I used to go over to, uh, those of you who know, Bart and Jan Wagner at the church here. Yeah, so I was friends with their daughter, uh, like my junior, senior year in high school. And I used to go over to their house sometimes for dinner. And I remember thinking like, you know, like, okay, this could be something. And they didn't know I was watching them. I remember telling them, telling Jan years later, like what the impact of that was for me. Don't underestimate the simplicity of you just living your life in front of broken people that you are giving them a gift, you're giving them a vision of something that could be a potential for them that they, maybe they've never reflected on before. Don't underestimate the power of, that is in you to just simply show up for somebody. Like Monica was talking about in the end video today. Um, so when we think about Jesus's vision of justice, these are the things that I want you to think about. I don't want you to think about a political program. I don't want you to think about a political party. I want you to think about, about you and kindness and what could you do to show someone some kindness that you don't even realize what your impact might be. So how have Christians historically been in these kinds of conversations about equality in church history. I want to just say a minute for a minute here. Inevitably, when I talk about this, this question, people always bring up, and it, it never fails. It's like, well, Christians have historically been racist and anti-women. That's the, and they, they always say that, and that's just not true. And I've tried to make the historical case in this class this year that that's just not been true. Are there moments in our history where that has been the case, absolutely. But the historical case, one of the things that made Christians so different in the Roman Empire was their treatment of of slaves and the inclusion of people from all ethnic groups and the inclusion of women as significant leaders in the early church. That is what made them stand out from their Roman neighbors. And it has not been the case historically that Christians have been prejudiced bigots and, and anti-women, okay? Now, we have our own cultural conversations today about what that should look like, and we've got all these buzzwords and, and trigger words and reactions, but historically speaking, 
this has been our faith. This is the legacy that I'm trying to encourage us to live out. And so the sources for those conversations is obviously scripture. I've tried to make that case overwhelming this year. Tradition in the church. If you're a Catholic, what they call the magisterium, which is the teaching of the Pope. And if in, there's a strong tradition in the Roman Catholic tradition for all of these things that I've been teaching this year. This is not just a white American Protestant evangelical point of view. This has been historically the things I've been teaching you in class have been historically the case. Um, and what we touched on last fall is what we call natural law or common grace, which is a Protestant version of the Catholic teaching and um, Abraham Kuyper, which we're going to talk about more in a moment. But, but these are our sources as Christians. It's, this is a long history that we have with exploring the image of God. Uh, historical examples, just a few. Ancient Christians, we just talked about that. William Wilberforce, we talked about that last October. We talked about him. Um, Frederick Douglass, uh, heavily influenced by the image of God concept in his writings about slavery. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the Second World War, a very uh, prominent uh, German theologian writing against the Nazis. Mother Teresa is a more modern example. The reason she was uh, wanting to help the lepers and the sick in India was because of the image of God. This is the historic Christian position. This is not a political view. This is not social justice is just some liberal idea. This is the historic legacy of our faith, that people are created in the image of God, and as such, they have inherent value, dignity, and worth. If you want to look at this more historically, here's some, some resources for you. Um, Abraham Kuyper's book, Common Grace, is now his, all of his writings have actually been translated from Dutch. He's an amazing Dutch theologian. So that's my tribe. So, of course, I'm like a little excited about that. Um, but uh, Abraham Kuyper's writings, he was both a very preeminent Dutch theologian, but he was also the prime minister of Holland at the beginning of to the 20th century. So he was a politician and a theologian. And he is a wonderful legacy and really has done the most to develop the idea of common grace. And so that's a resource. Uh, William Wilberforce's classic Real Christianity from the 1700s is still a classic, was really what led to the um, dissolution of the modern uh, European slavery uh, movement. Um, and then uh, Ron Nash, uh, his book, Social Justice in the Christian Church, Ron Nash is my favorite modern theologian. Uh, he just passed away a few years ago. I got to meet him once. I have a picture of myself with him. Uh, we got to speak at the same conference together once. And uh, he, he, he was probably in his 80s by that time, but definitely my favorite theologian and philosopher. Um, and I really appreciate his book, um, social, on his works on social justice. If you want more of like a ministry resource, uh, the Acton Institute is something that's been very meaningful to me. Uh, they, I actually won a, a contest when I was in seminary to go to a special study group uh, with the Acton Institute, and I got to study with some of their scholars. It was really cool um, in my early 20s and um, f have followed them ever since. And they really do a lot to look at issues of uh, social justice, but from the lens 
of um, liberty and uh, religious freedom. And it's, it's kind of a different point of view. And I really like their work. They're doing some really good and important work there. It's run by a Catholic priest named Father Robert Sirico. And um, it's, I, I've been really, really impressed for about 25 years with the work that they've been doing. And um, very uh, thought-provoking articles that they have that just come at the social justice conversation from a little bit different angle than is typical. Another classic is St. Basil the Great's On Social Justice. And just to show you that this is the historic position, St. Basil is coming from, you know, like the late 200s, early 300s. And so uh, this is his classic work is now in English. And you can just get it on Amazon. My Orthodox friends, that was the ones that they recommended. So I like to get an ancient faith perspective in the mix there. So I've tried to give you like some good resources if you want to go deeper into these conversations. Um, from a historical standpoint. If we want to carry forward the biblical tradition of equality, should Christians jump on board with the current social justice movement? Now, again, I'm going to give my caveat I gave last week. Some people are going to watch this video and I'm going to get angry emails. They're going to think I'm too liberal. Others are going to think I'm too conservative and I'm not doing justice right. So I'm just going to kind of be in the middle and ask for grace and ask you to think about about these things, okay? My answer to this question is, it depends. Not every movement waving the social justice banner promotes the kind of equality the Bible calls God's people to seek. Circle that, underline that, do something to that, because that is so important. Are, is there overlap with the current social justice movement? Yes, and we have covered that amply this year. But are there some important departures? Yes, and we're going to look at a few of those. There are some similarities, but there are also very important differences. So now we're gonna look at our, culture, our culture's worldview about social justice. Okay, so social justice, what is it? You go in the culture and there's like this banner that's so wide of what is social justice from our culture standpoint. Is it equal access to education? Is it rights to housing? Is it gay rights, women's rights, racial inequality, more fairness, more dignity? What does that even mean? What, what are these things? Is it child welfare? Is it universal health care? What is social justice? And it, it can almost become this term that means anything that someone thinks is unfair and ought to be straightened out. You know, and it's, it's, it's like, what is this thing? It's like nailing jello to the wall. I don't know what this is from my cultural, from my culture standpoint. And if you go and just do a quick search on the internet of what is social justice, there's all kinds of definitions of what it is and what it includes and how political parties ought to align with it or advocate for it. And then you go on Twitter and you got Christians who say, well, if you're not for this, then you're not a Christ follower. And then other Christians saying, well, if you're against this, then you're not a Christ follower. And it's like all this, whoa, 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 whoa. What is social justice? Big question, big question. And so when you're in these conversations, that's always a great question to ask your friend is what is your understanding of what social justice is? And what is the foundation for it? 
That's two very important questions. When somebody wants to get you into a conversation about social justice is ask them, well, I'm, I'm curious, what's your definition of what is social justice? And then ask them, what's the foundation for it? How do I know what's just and unjust? What will act as the measuring rod or the ruler to determine what's equal or just? See, this is the big problem I've got with our cultural conversation about social justice, is that everyone's in a conversation about equality, and things need to be more equal. But what is the measuring rod? How do I know when I've arrived at the destination of equality or justice? What is my criteria? That's another question you can ask. How do I know when I've arrived at justice? What, are the, what, is, what is the measuring rod I'm going to use? Where do I get my definition of what's equal? Is it my opinions? Is it my feelings? Well, it just seems more equal this way. Is it my intuitions? Is it my experience? Well, what is equality? What does that even look like? That's a big question. What is justice? What's the goal? Like if I want to make the world a more just place, what's the goal? What's the measuring rod of how I get there? And how do I know I've arrived? These are the annoying questions that are always in my mind because that no one wants to talk about. It's like, well, we, no, let's just call each other names. You know, that's unjust. That's unfair. Well, why? How do I know that? How do I know that that's unfair? What is evil without an objective standard of what's good? Have you ever thought about that? You can't know what's evil if there's no good. Something about abusing children is evil, right? We, we, we think that's, that's evil. Murdering someone without, just for no reason, that's evil. Torturing babies is evil. But how do we know what evil is if we don't have a concept of good? And all of that flows, how do we know what good is? Well, I, I can answer that as a Christian. I know what good is. It's the love of the Father and how he treats us as his children. That's where I get my standard of good. I have a concept for that as a Christian. But if I'm a secular humanist, how do I know what good is? Is it my emotions? Is it the law? Is it the government? Is it culture? Is it the majority? How do I know what good is? And how do I even know what evil is? See, in the social justice conversation, there's all these accusations of, well, that's evil. Great, I agree with you, that's evil. I agree with you that abusing children is wrong. But I can tell you why. I can tell you why I think abusing children is wrong because I have a concept of the Heavenly Father who treats his children with love and care and, and respect and, and that all humans are created in the image of God and that includes children. I can answer that question. But as a secular humanist, why is it wrong to, to abuse a child? Sure, but then you're borrowing my worldview because that's what Jesus said. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You're free to borrow my worldview. Just make, let's be clear that you're borrowing my worldview. And you're borrowing my objective standard of good in my worldview and saying, this is a universal truth that we ought to treat others the way that we want to be treated. Terrific. 
But that's rooted and grounded in the idea of a good God who gives us rules. Yes. And that's where we see, where I said before, we, we ought to expect that there would be some overlap because of the doctrine of common grace. We, we ought to expect that because all of us are created in the image of God. So this is a review. So it's okay. We'll go back to this. Um, because we're all created in the image of God, we all, part of that is our conscience. So we ought to expect there to be some overlap. I actually think there's probably truth in all religions. But how do I know what the truth is in other religions? It's because I think that there's a, there's a standard or a ruler of what truth is in Christianity. So how do I, like, okay, let's say I tell you, I want you to measure something that's three inches long. But you don't know what an inch is. You've never seen a ruler. And you're like, I don't, I don't know what that means. You can only measure something if you have a standard. Yeah. And if you don't have a standard, then how do you know what it is? The reason we know that in our conscience that it's wrong to torture children, that just seems intuitively obvious. That seems like what we call in philosophy a self-evident truth. I think that's the result of us being created in the image of God. But there are cultures who don't see it that way, which we looked at earlier in the year, some cultural examples of that. So it's not a universal truth. Where we see in the realm of common grace, okay, which touches everyone in all cultures and all times and all places, where we see overlap with the Christian worldview. But again, if we don't know what the standard is, if we don't know what the ruler is, then we don't know what's right. Because there are some cultures that think that selling your children into slavery is okay. So, but if we have common ground with them, on a social issue, I think we ought to align with people who have similar social concerns that we do, even if they're from another religious perspective, because we ought to expect, because all humans are created in the image of God, and all humans have some knowledge of God. I mean, we've read Romans 1 like 14 times this year, um, that, that we ought to, we all know, we have some level of knowingness about God and his existence and his character. So we ought to expect some overlap with unbelievers in our our worldview beliefs. But how do we know what the good is? Yeah, there has to be a truth. There has to be a truth. And how do we know what the truth is? That's what we spent all last year talking about. How do we know Christianity is the truth? How do we know that's the standard? And now we're applying the standard to our culture. That's what we've been engaged in this year. Okay, so let's keep going and see if this helps. All right. So the cultural definition of social justice is, I think, there's really no fixed point about what constitutes justice other than what the government currently defines. Or cultural convention, majority rule, um, our cultural sensibilities, which are really a lot of times honestly based on our emotions of what seems right to us. That's how we say it. This is just what seems right to me. And there's, there's not really a cultural, from our cultural standpoint, a definition of what constitutes a social justice other than things that are unequal that need to be fixed. But we don't know what the inequality is and we don't know how we've arrived at when it's fixed. 
I don't think, I can't find a coherent definition of that in our culture. Now, I'm not speaking from our worldview standpoint, right? I'm speaking from our cultural narrative, from where we're at in our culture. So you are in the generation of transition, I think. This is what I call it. So what I, one of the things I've been trying to do in this class is help you understand your, the glasses that you're wearing. That, that many of you are in that older generation and you're in the, the, the generation of transition where the culture that you grew up in had many more similarities and sensibilities that were shared with the Christian worldview. And some not. Some were very, like, a very legalistic understanding of Christianity. Some were not, I think there have been some actual useful corrections in Christianity that have happened in the last 20, 30 years. But what I'm trying to help us do is understand and become more aware of our glasses and to, and to understand the difference of what it means to be an American versus a Christian and then versus my worldview as, as a child when I was growing up in this entity called Christian America, whatever that was. And it was some vision of Christianity oftentimes that was much more legalistic than it is today. And we have all these different glasses that we put on, and I'm tr I've been trying laboriously, <laughs> potentially not effectively, in helping us understand all of these glasses and to help us understand, well, these are my political glasses. This is how I think as an American. This is what I think about um, border security, or this is what I think about the president, or this is what I think that it ought to look like to help the poor. These are political ideas. But this is what it means to be a Jesus follower. And this is how I personally show up in my life and my personal impact with one another. And then this was the, the worldview of, of me growing up in the 1950s. And, and my, my ladies are freezing back here, Bob. Uh, so this, this is my worldview of when I was growing up that impacted me, that was just very legalistic and it caused me hurt, and maybe I left the church for a while. I mean, there's a lot of different glasses that we have. And I've been trying to help us become aware of like, okay, when I say this, I'm talking about my politics. But when I say this, I'm, I'm trying to think more authentically as a, as a Christ follower, all right? Mm -hmm. And when I speak like this, it's like, oh, here, I got injured in my childhood from legalism. I, I don't know, you know, and so I'm trying to help us understand when, where we're speaking from in our soul in these different moments and how to know the difference. And I put these glasses on and then I put these glasses on and I'm wanting to become aware of all of these things. But from a cultural standpoint, when we talk about social justice, it's very difficult because we currently have transitioned into a culture that I think the dominant worldview is secular, some form of secular humanism. That, that God doesn't really exist and that I have been left to make up my own moral code. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a good person according to whatever definition of good that I have come up with or that my parents have taught me with some maybe marginal influence of religion or my own experience or my emotions or my brokenness or whatever that is. Okay? So, uh, 
Okay, changing concepts of social justice are changing concepts of justice. When, when we allow governments to define what's just and equal, we end up with wide variants of what it means. Like there's been times in our history where, where and I've list, listed just a few historical events here, where the concept of justice meant something very different than it does today. Yeah. Equality meant something very different than it does today. So when we allow culture or governments to define what's just, we end up with wide variants of what that looks like. So this is why I, I belabored the point last week and for a whole year <laughs> that our grounding is in the, the image of God. It's not in a government. It's not in a political ideology. It's in our inherent inborn dignity and worth that we get from being a creation of God. Okay, so just one example, but in our culture right now, there's a conversation about equality happening. How many of you have seen this bumper sticker with this equal sign? This is the, the, the logo for the National Human Rights Campaign, is what it's called. And this is the body that is, that is the lobbying body that is, is behind a lot of the lobbying for gay marriage and the normalization of gay marriage. And the equality sign is, is equality of marriage, the freedom to marry whomever you want except even they won't, don't advocate for marrying children, and so there are certain limitations, but be that as it may, that, that there is an equality of marriage, okay? So the question is, is, is this a vision of equality that fits with what we are advocating as historical Christians? This is why when we allow the culture to define equality, it gets very messy, is what are we talking about? I'm not, just because I'm not for gay marriage doesn't mean I'm automatically for killing gay people. But that's the setup yeah. in the cultural conversation right now. And so because this word equality is so closely associated with social justice, then there's this idea, well, if you're not for gay marriage, then you're not for equality. But that has never been part of the vision of what it means to be an advocate for equality from a historic Christian point of view. But we want to be a stand for equality, but we want to be careful in how we're defining it, right? Mm -hmm. So are we talking about um, devaluing people, like devaluing women, devaluing the unborn? These are all things that we've talked about. No, we're just talking about people that want to get married. They want to redefine marriage. Well, that's a different conversation as to whether or not it's even equality. Like, is that what that conversation is? Is it about equality? What does that mean? That's a whole big philosophical discussion. But because this word equality is such a buzzword in our culture, and it's become so closely aligned with concepts of social justice, many, many Christians are very confused. Like, hey, I want to be for justice. I want justice is good. I want to be for just things. God is for just things. But I don't know what to think about this because even the name of the, 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 the um, entity, Human Rights Campaign, I want to be for human rights. I think humans have rights. But it's about this specific question of gay marriage. And that's where it gets muddy in our culture. So now we're having this conversation of, well, what does the majority think? 
majority of Americans are for gay marriage. So now we're going to call that equality. But that's a, that's a whole difficult, do you see the stickiness of it? When we allow the culture and the government to start coming in and defining what equality is. And then some people are more equal than others. Like, for example, the question of whether or not Christians have, have the rights to what we used to call conscientious objecting, which was looked upon in the culture as being somewhat virtuous, that you could opt out of certain things for religious reasons. You could opt out of the draft if you were a pacifist. That was something that was allowed in our culture. They said, you know, this is rare, but we understand that people have, have conscientious objections to certain things on religious grounds. But now we're having a conversation of conscientious objecting isn't allowed anymore. So some things are more equal than other things. Unless you get on board with this vision of equality, then you're not for equality. And you can't opt out as a conscientious objector because for a religious reason. Then we get, then we get in a whole conversation about baking cakes and wedding yeah. photography and all of that. that. What I'm trying to help you understand is what's happening in the culture and how this, what's coming under the rubric of social justice, which we want to, there are many things in the social justice conversation we want to be for. So we don't want to villainize it and say, oh, social justice, I just some evil liberal thing. No, there's some parts of that that we share. But then there's the excesses of when the words justice and equality kind of get co-opted and redefined by the culture and the government. So I want, I'm hoping you're seeing the difference between the Christian vision and the cultural vision of these two things, that these are two very different entities at times with some overlap. Okay. So just to try to tease this out a little bit more, our culture's view of social justice often blames evil merely on external systems of oppression. They're like, let's get rid of this system. The system is evil. You, see, you hear them talk about that. There are, un, are there unjust systems that Christians should challenge? Yes. And we have historically done that. I think Will, William Wilberforce uh, is a great historical example of how he used the image of God doctrine that had been there all along, but had kind of been eclipsed and lost a little bit in the church. Um, and bringing that to the surface and saying, look, slavery, buying and selling people is not okay. You know, that's, that's not okay. Was that an unjust system that Christians needed to challenge? Absolutely. We ought to challenge. And we, you know, it, it, it's, uh, that was an important thing. So, yes, are there external systems that are evil? Yes. But... Secular views of social justice generally ignore the reality that the human heart is full of evil and in need of regeneration. Twisted hearts are what makes systems unjust. We cannot get to a vision of social justice that's only about reforming systems. We have to have the gospel and reform the human heart. And that's why last week I spent an hour and 15 minutes talking about the gospel first because any vision of of social just what we call social justice has to include the life transforming uh message of the gospel it can't merely be to restructure an evil system and we we have to carefully differentiate between these two we need both we need to reform evil systems but we need to understand that we need to change twisted hearts 
And that's why I think the, the example of Heidi Baker was so helpful is that there she was in a cultural context where people are throwing rocks at her. They're in a different religious system and she's trying to bring Jesus to them. And, and were there evil systems in place? Yes, it's a very corrupt government. But her way of doing that was by the gospel first and then beginning to change those, those, those systems over time. Activism that only attacks external systems won't bring about lasting justice without a change in the hearts. This is why the example of Cambodia way back last October was so important because when um, Agape International came into those cities in Cambodia and began to say like, these, these children are created in the image of God. It's not okay to sell them into sexual slavery. They're, they're created in the image of God. We need to respect that. That then in turn over time, they started changing the external systems but they had to change people's hearts too. Otherwise it wouldn't have resulted in lasting change. It needs, we need to have a vision that involves both. Our culture's view of social justice often argues that all hierarchies are evil and must be abolished in the name of equality. Should Christians fight for certain kinds of equality? Yes, we've talked all year about those examples. A biblical worldview opposes the sinful abuse of power. But a biblical worldview also sees many hierarchies like parent-child, rabbi-disciple, elders, congregation, teacher-student relationships as part of God's design for human flourishing. Our goal is not to eliminate all hierarchies. Now, do we have some hierarchies that need to be dismantled? Are there some hierarchies that do result in abuses of power? Absolutely, and we need to be circumspect about that and talk about that and be in those difficult conversations. But the problem is not hierarchies. The problem is the sin problem. It's a heart problem. And there are some hierarchies that God seems to have set up for human flourishing. You know, a parent-child relationship will not work if everybody's equal, you know, uh, you know, parents might not make all the best decisions, but most of the time they're going to make better decisions than the child would make if he or she was on his own in, the, in their own foolishness, right? Like there's no perfect parents. My therapist used to say, don't stop worrying about trying to be a perfect parent. You, you just need to be a good enough parent. And that's adequate. And that took like so much pressure off. It was fantastic. And, you know, but to dismantle the parent-child relationship is not, ought not be our goal. That is a structure and a hierarchy that is set up by God from the beginning. So hierarchies are not the, necessarily the problem. Do they sometimes contribute to sinful abuses of power? Absolutely. We're walking through that right now. I don't know if you guys have been following the, all the problems with the Southern Baptists right now and what they're going through. Yeah. But, uh, oh man, it's a hot mess. And, uh, well, we can talk about it later, but man, it's a mess. And they're, they're, uh, one of their very prominent seminary presidents has been protecting abusers. Um, and the women who are seminary students are starting to speak out. And I commend them because um, I can understand their plight as a, as a woman who went to seminary. And, you know, there's, there, were there abuses of power? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean we need to dismantle the whole seminary system, yeah. right? We just need to make things a little better. 
Okay, number three, our culture's view of social justice often interprets truth, reason, and logic as mere constructs of the oppressive class. I hear this a lot. Um, it encourages us to dismiss people's viewpoints on the basis of their skin color or their gender. That, you know, if you're a white man, you can't speak about anything related to race simply because you're a white man. If you, you, can't, you can't talk about women if you're a man. This is, the, this is the cultural mindset that we are being invited into. And I was talking to my friend who's an African-American uh, recently, and she, she was like, you know, we need people to, we need white people to speak up. We need people in the majority to speak up for the minority. And to say that white people can't ever say anything about black people is to leave us in a very vulnerable position. Um, and so we need people that are in the majority to, to, to help and defend and, and give other people who are in the minority help and, and, and to make sure that equality and opportunity is happening. But so, exists, yeah, yeah. And so that's the middle position I'm trying to get to is like, don't deny that you know, race is a problem or gender, but, but don't be in a position, don't advocate for a position that, that just because you, know, you're, you belong to a certain group, that means you're disqualified from saying anything. That's, that's not a Christian way of thinking. That reflects our cultural way of thinking. Here's our glasses again. I want us to be aware of where we're buying into things. God calls all people to love God with our whole minds. Ideas should be assessed based on their biblical fidelity, their truth value, and their evidence, not the group identity of those articulating it. The truth is the truth. Now, are we standing for the truth, or are we standing for something that's real? This is why I've been hammering at you guys for three years to try to look to the historic Christian position not the 21st century American Protestant position. What has the church historically believed? This helps us have a more global and historical perspective on our faith. So we want to express our ideas based on, is it faithful to scripture? Does it accurately reflect truth as the church has, has taught it historically? What's the evidence for this? It's not valid or invalid just because of my skin color or my gender. So I'm so glad you brought up that example. And I think I was going to get to this, but I'll, I'll say it right now. So what you're talking about is, yes, as a Christian, I think that homelessness is a problem. And we don't want to violate people's dignity. And we think that people should have dignity. And, like, you know, there should be some basic provision for people. Like, I think we can all get behind that. The question is, is, how do we do it? This is the question. And so this is what drives me nuts, is that there is, the, the people will say, well, unless the how looks like this, then you're not a Christ follower. You're a compromiser. Or unless the help looks like this, then you're not a Christ follower. And I'm like, whoa, let's just sit down and talk about this. We all agree that we don't want people's, homeless people's dignity violated. But we don't want them in our city, though. Well, we don't want them in our city. We don't want them sitting on our curbs. We want to make laws, zoning laws. So the how is the conversation. And this is what's so 
like insane about our culture right now is because we don't want to talk about the how. The setup in our culture is, well, if your social justice doesn't look like this, then you're not for justice. And I'm like, well, maybe there's another possibility. Maybe I just am thinking about how, what justice might look like in a different way. And so, and we did a whole lesson on work way last fall, and I kind of laid out sort of my vision of that. But this is, this is why we have to be very careful when we, why I'm always like, let's not be Americans first. Let's be Jesus followers first. And I think we can all agree that homelessness is a problem. The question is, is how do we go about that enterprise? Well, I try not to be quite so um, hopeless about it, but we'll get to that. Um, uh, our culture's view, number four, our culture's view of social justice often generates a spirit of suspicion, hostility, fear, labeling, and chronic offendedness. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Like, like you, 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 when you talk about these issues, it's almost immediately one or both parties are in a, a posture of hostility, labeling, and just an offense, and I'm, I'm offended, you know? And I'm just standing there wanting to have a conversation. Can I ask some questions? Like, I have questions. A biblical worldview champions a unifying kind of love that is not easily offended. So, like, if you're naming the name of Christ and you're wanting to be an advocate for social justice, I bless you. But don't walk around like you're in a perpetual state of being angry at the body of Christ. There was a tweet this week by a very prominent woman who likes to be a champion of social justice, and she's an evangelical Christian. I, maybe not evangelical anymore. She, I would label her as more progressive now. But she has millions of Christian white women followers on social media. And her tweet this week was, I'm so disgusted with the church on their, on their lack of, of uh, action on social justice. I just want to burn the whole church down. Wow. And I'm like, Whoa! This is, the body, this is the bride of Christ you're talking about. Like, I'm not up for that. So if you want to champion social justice, that's great. Be thoughtful about it. Be careful about it. Make sure it's being grounded in the Christian worldview more than our culture. But don't get in such a state of chronic offense with the church that you get like you're just angry all the time. Like, if you can't have a conversation about justice, but also at the same time be advocating a spirit of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, I don't know what spirit that conversation is coming from. And the same from the other side of the aisle. Notice how I'm trying to be really careful because I'm not really labeling, like, what side is what. Because both sides do this. And, we, and so it's like when you're, when you're in a conversation with somebody about these types of issues, and you start feeling like, okay, I'm really not feeling like a lot of love right now. Like, my patience is not happening. Like, I better check myself. What spirit am I coming from? We, we have to be in a, a, in a careful situation here of sometimes we can want the right things, we can want righteous things, but we, we go about it from a posture that's, like, not fun. Like, who wants to be invited to that party? Like, I, I want to advocate for hope. I don't want to advocate for, oh, this is just hopeless. Let's just burn the church down. I want to advocate from a posture of, 
Like, okay, so maybe we're not showing up to this conversation so well right now, but maybe we could do better. Maybe there's hope. Maybe Let's start finding some positive examples. I've tried to present you some positive examples in the class this year so that you can start to get your own vision of what that could look like. I'm trying to put hope in a hopeless space. Our culture's view of social justice seeks behavior modification through intimidation, political coercion, speech codes, and ideological re-education. And this happens on both sides. I see this in the homeschool community all the time. A big part of the strategy is you're going to talk this way, and here's our strategy for re-educating children. It's, it, ha- it happens on both sides. A biblical worldview seeks character transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit, discipleship, and generosity in the local church context. Okay, six, our culture's view of social justice teaches that the ultimate purpose and meaning of humanity is defined by the individual, what Romans 1 calls the creature. And anyone who challenges our self-defined purpose and meaning is labeled as an oppressor or legalistic or judgmental. And this is the cultural narrative right now about the church, is that I define what my moral code is. I define who I am. I define what's meaningful to me. And this is my children's generation is, you know, they're being inundated with this worldview. And that any voice that tells them, well, maybe, have you ever considered that your self-defined purpose might not be in alignment with the scripture? You're judgmental. You're legalistic. I think it's just a lot of confusion, to be honest. I think there's just, we're not getting a lot of teaching. There's not a lot of teaching happening for our young people in the church. We're not really teaching them how to think and how to think biblically. There's, the biblical literacy is high among the emerging generation. A biblical worldview teaches that our telos, which is in Greek, our end goal, is defined by the creator, not us. Our inherent dignity, value, and worth is from the creator. Real freedom doesn't come from defining myself or following my heart. Like there's one of those cultural cliches that make me lose my mind. Uh, I do not, if I've taught my children to follow their heart, I have honestly failed. I want to teach you to follow the Lord and his vision for your life. Do not follow your heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked and will lead you into deception. And it's, it, it will not help you if it's sinful. But if your heart is aligned with the Lord's heart, then yeah, go for it. Be in that lane. But letting God define for you by following his heart for who you are. That is the vision. This is why it's so important for us to know and get our identity from who the Father says that we are. If we don't know that, then yeah, the culture will rush in and be real quick to tell us who we ought to be. So back to this very unfortunate uh, thing from last week. Should we reject social justice as evil? No, I don't think we should in some cases. Remember this pastor? Yeah. Yeah. It's just liberal. It's just Marxist ideology. I would say, no, that's not necessarily the the case. Is social justice evil? No, it depends. What are we talking about? If we're talking about advocating for biblical views of equality based on the image of God, then no, justice is necessary 
It is a necessary part of being a Christian to speak into evil, to dismantle evil systems. If we're talking about cultural ideas about social justice, then it might be unbiblical, but there might be overlap too, because we are all created in the image of God. So careful analysis is required. God's vision of reconciliation. Jesus destroyed, John read this this morning in the sermon. Jesus destroyed the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile to make for himself one man, Ephesians 2, uniting people from every tongue, tribe, and nation and making them ambassadors of reconciliation. Family and reconciliation, not intergroup warfare, is the Bible's model for justice. Christians must live that out in an obvious and compelling way to show the watching world the beautiful alternative to mutual destruction. We are on the path to mutual destruction right now, and I'm hoping to inspire you in your personal life to be a stand for kindness in your speech, to be a stand for hope and a better way, and that you can invite people in to a better and deeper conversation about the father's love i wanted to play this one clip i know you guys got to go so i it's like a it's about four minutes it's the end of the heidi baker thing it's kind of the wrap of the whole class here this little girl taught me what love looks like she she taught me what love and mercy looks like I know what this little girl does. You know, she has to sell her body, her one-legged body to eat. She sells her one-legged body to get a piece of bread. She sells her one-legged body, her one-legged 10-year-old body to drink a Coca-Cola. You know, this is like, somebody stop for one, somebody, you know, this, this, this little girl is suffering out here. Like the pain in her was incredible. And grandmother's a witch doctor. So when the house burned down and her leg burned off, grandmother said to the two older brothers, go out to the field and kill Helena. Kill her, stone her because she's of no use to us. She's no value to us. She has no leg. So the brothers go out to the field and they throw rocks at her head and they think that she's dead. They think she's dead, but she's not. And she's lying there, bloody, broken, dying. This is so much. It's so clear. You can read the gospel and you can read it. And if you just talk to people and you don't understand that love looks like something and you just say to Lena, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. What a cruddy mess of a life you have. And you don't say to her, come home and live with me. Then love is it. I don't know what love is if it doesn't look like something. And one day after a while, she just looks at me and she goes, Mama, I want to go home. And I, I just, I thought, no way. The, my first reaction was no way. No way, uh, no, I wanted, to, I just said, no, no, you're not going back to that home. That's like, that's the most dysfunctional family that I've ever heard of. And I know a few, you know, it's like that one, no. And she said, what do you mean? How do you, do you think 
you told me about grace. You said, you said Jesus forgives. You said Jesus loves. You said Jesus loves. You said love looks like something. You said, you said mercy. She said, how can I not go home and tell my family about Jesus? How can I not go home and tell them about love? I just pray for radical love to just rock this generation, God. I ask you for love to just come in and, and, and stretch every heart, God. Show them what love looks like, God. Show them what love looks like, God. That they would just go out to the darkest places. They would go to the brothels. They would go to the drug dens. They would go to the streets. They would go to the villages. They would go to the universities and they would stop for the one and they would they would stop for the one every single day of their life. So that's my hope and prayer for you, is that you'll stop for the one. Whoever the one is in your life who needs hope, who needs a vision, who needs to know the Father's love in a deeper way, that you will stop for the one and that you'll, the love must look like something. Yeah. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are for us and that your transforming love doesn't leave us where we were. It takes us somewhere new. May we be signposts that point others toward you. May we be a living, breathing picture of your love and your hands and feet for the people in our lives. Challenge us. Challenge us with your vision of love, your reckless vision of love that we would never see people just as they are right now in their brokenness, that you would give us a, a vision of how you see them and all of their potential. Just as people saw me as a broken, lost teenager, they invited me to sit at their table. They put their arms around me, and they just loved me. And they loved heaven into me. Lord, you didn't just, Jesus, you didn't just die to get me into heaven. You died to get heaven into me so that I could bring that to the world around me. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.